Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back, June 21st, 2021. If one were to think of the word or phrase of the year for this year, it's increasingly clear to me that it wouldn't be, it won't be COVID, though it could possibly or plausibly be Wuhan. We can come back to that. My candidate, though, is the phrase critical race theory, also known as CRT. The left is saying it's a right-wing or conservative invention or fantasy or boogeyman that doesn't exist, or it's something the right or conservatives use as a cover to not teach about slavery and its legacy in America. First of all, however, it is absurd to think that of the right or conservatives. We who have been trying to teach about the disconnect between our founding and the Declaration of Independence and what was ultimately settled in the Civil War. It's popular, of course, for every Republican to say he or she comes from the party of Abraham Lincoln. Less understood, perhaps, is why it is said and why it is important, why Lincoln was Lincoln, and why the Republican Party came into being in the first place. For to understand Lincoln's argument is to understand the Declaration of Independence and not just to understand it, but, and this is the ugly key of American history, to understand that unless the Declaration of Independence was worth something, had value, there really is no singly organic document to point to in guaranteeing much less securing any kind of civil rights. It was for this reason anti-slavery and civil rights activists from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr. would cite to it again and again. Why is that the ugly fact of American history? Because of everything that descends from it. Starting that if you want to perpetuate the ugliness or failings of this country, you must scrub or denounce the inherent, if not foundational, corrections and correctives and solutions to those failings that were inherent in our very founding. In other words, if you want America to be seen as low, or down, or full of fault, or never that great, you scrub or denounce those things that changed the reasons and the facts for those failings. We can't focus on our elimination of slavery. After all, we must focus on its fact and its legacy. You see, its elimination is the legacy of our founding, which was Lincoln's argument in real time and not what the left wants you to know about today. To focus on the elimination of slavery is to appreciate what Lincoln said about our founding and what our founders said about liberty and equality. And it's a very high thing, which is not what the progressive left wants you to think when you think about the founding. So the ugly key unlocks two chambers at once. If you want to teach why slavery 
was an American evil and occurrence, you have to ignore that our founding was good and gave us the roadmap out of slavery. If you want to explain why slavery existed and thrived here, you have to accept that it was in disregard to our founding, a departure from it. And if you want to find the greatest of contempts for our founding and fathers and founding fathers, you find it amongst those who also think slavery was more in keeping with American ideas and ideals than freedom and equality. In other words, only by distorting our founding can you justify slavery. And the left wants our history to be written that America's founding was low and based on a lie, and that slavery is the essence, if not beginning, of our country and our history. The ugly key gets you a the founding was a lie, and B, because it was slavery that was essential to and keeping the ideals of our country. The shame of all this ugliness is also twofold. A, it swallows whole the argument of the Confederacy's founders and leaders, and B, it's untrue. Note, to justify slavery in America, one had to de-justify our founding creed. It is not an accident, then, that the modern-day left, as the slave-holding confederacy of yore, do that self-exact same thing, de-justify and denounce our founding and its creed as a lie. Once accomplished, they then accept and adopt the arguments of the confederacy, and then to make matters worse— attempt to tell us the Confederacy had the better argument and in some ways should have won the Civil War, given their reading of the Declaration of Independence. How can I say that? Because everything you hear about the founding from the left is what the Confederate leaders said of it, as opposed to people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. And everything you hear about slavery in America is as if it was thus our defining and lost cause attribute. It wasn't. By a long shot. Start with the numbers. First, the population. The non-slaveholding and anti-slavery union population was three times larger, 300% larger than the slaveholding and pro-slavery Confederate population. Second, there were twice the anti-slavery union number of states as there were pro-slavery Confederate states. And third, warriors. The anti-slavery union number of soldiers were twice the number of the pro-slavery Confederate soldiers. And it began before 1860, if you please. As Tom West put it, every leading founder acknowledged that slavery was wrong, slavery was legal, and practice in every state in 1776. But by the end of the founding era, more than 100,000 slaves had been freed by the outlawing of slavery in seven of the original 13 states and by individual acts of manumission, especially in The South, most important, the ground for the eventual total abolition of all slavery, was laid in establishment of the equality principle at the center of the American polity put there by Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, Hamilton, Adams, Washington, and other leading founders. 
So in nearly every category I can think of to identify representation, the slaveholding cause in America was vastly smaller than the anti-slavery cause. But the smaller cause, which also lost, is now taught as the, divine, as the defining cause that best and most truly represents America and American history. It's as if the Union didn't win. It's as if there's no Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., but a Jefferson Davis Memorial. It's as if there were no Civil Rights Act 100 years after the Civil War to finish off its long-needed work against a recalcitrant lost cause Democratic Party progressivism that, again, tried to call our Declaration of Independence a lie. It would be something very much like saying America was a pro-tax, pro-spent country in the 1980s. How do I know that? Just listen to the speeches of the most famous United States senator, then Ted Kennedy. Except more absurd, for at least Ted Kennedy represented a recognized elected position in this country. Totally reversed has been the notion that the victors write history. When it comes to where we are on race relations today, we are reading the loser's history book. I don't mean that just pejoratively, though I do mean it pejoratively, too. I mean it because to treat slavery as so essential and part of this country's founding ideas to treat the Confederacy's argument as the rational one and Lincoln's and Douglas's and Grant's, not to mention Martin Luther King and every civil right labor of the 1950s and 1960s as the irrational one or the argument to be ignored. And to continue to treat the Confederacy's argument about our founding as the rational one is to not only side with the losers, the Confederacy, but to say they had the better point. I would just like to remind simply. At the Appomattox Courthouse, Ulysses S. Grant did not surrender to Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee did not say to his troops, as Ulysses S. Grant said to his, the war is over, the rebels are our countrymen again. Everything above I've given you, everything above I've given you, is how critical race theory works. It takes a text and manipulates it to fit or insert a racial excuse or narrative. And boy, has our text been manipulated. But no two... I'm only speaking of what takes place beginning around age 12. There is a lot of priming of the pump that must take place first. Let's take the book Anti-Racist Baby. It's a children's book, a very famous one written by Ibram Kemdi, aimed at the youngest of children to be read to them, like a Dr. Seuss book, except racist. Babies are born racist, Kendi tells us on page one of his book, or at least that they are not born anti-racist and thus need to be, quote, bred, his terminology, to think as the book teaches. Then, quote, if you claim to be colorblind, you deny what is right in front of you, close quote. That's the first lesson in this baby book. By the way, the phrase climate justice and the word equity adorn this book and commence with the introductory pictures for the children. You know, the pictures children point to and ask about in these kinds of books. 
As Andrew Sullivan puts it, it's a little hard to argue that CRT is not interested in indoctrinating kids when its chief proponent in the United States has a kiddie book on the market. Andrew Sullivan goes on, the goal of education of children this young is to cement the notion at the most formative age that America is at its core an oppressive racist system uniquely designed to exploit, harm, abuse, and even kill the non-white. This can be conveyed in easy terms by training kids to see themselves first and foremost as racial avatars and by inculcating in them a sense of their destiny as members of the oppressed or oppressor class in the zero-sum struggle for power that is American society in 2021. Similarly with critical race theory, impenetrable academic discourse at the elite level is translated to child-friendly truisms with the same aim, to change behavior. And so the notion that the most important thing about a child is that she is white, and this makes her part of an oppressive system purposely designed to hurt her new friend who is black, is how this comes out in actual real-life scenarios. And she has to account for her indelible whiteness. Critical race theory also has its own words and values, and they are instilled from the beginning. New language, racism, systems, intersectionality, oppression, hegemony, whiteness, privilege, cisgender, and doing the work, as Dr. Jill Biden would say. We can teach children they are children and human, and from those categories flow an entire river of responsibilities, benefits, rights, expectations, dreams, and privileges. Or we can teach children they are nothing more nor less than their race and thus cannot be or achieve anything more nor less than their race or anything more or less than their race dictates. There was a word for that second thing once upon a time. It was called apartheid. There was another word for it, Jim Crow. There was another word for it, chattel slavery. Who knew, after all we've been through, the progressives among us would be embracing all that again. But at bottom, that is what they are embracing. Exactly that. Exactly that. Don't cede the high ground to them. They surrendered it a long time ago. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602 Thank you to Bill for showing me this story. Uh, it's not the biggest of stories, but it is representing something uh, that is bigger, and that's the story of the Fort Lauderdale mayor, Dean Trontalis. Do you see what happened over the weekend? There was a gay pride parade, excuse me, in Fort Lauderdale that uh, – that, um, that, suffered from a you know a deadly crash and um, the mayor immediately claimed it was a disgusting terrorist attack only to learn later it was an accident he apologized for rushing to judgment <clears throat> the, 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 the the rushing to judgment or what we sometimes call here the rush to be wrong you expect from people looking to get check marks or hits on Twitter. You don't usually expect it at a crime scene from the mayor 
who is usually the head of the police department as well, over, oversees the chief of the police. You would not usually expect to be the first to be wrong to be the mayor in a big city like Fort Lauderdale. Again, not the biggest of problems, but they speak – these two things speak to a larger problem, which is why so many people are inclined initially, ab initio, to assume the worst, whether it's about this country or your community. See, we are now living in a society – where you can legitimately be called racist for criticizing a person of color in the parlance of our times for something they said having nothing to do with race. Ilan Omar pulls this card all the time. AOC plays it a lot of the time. And then they retreat by finding cover from their race. Why are you attacking a black woman? Why are you attacking a Muslim woman? As Rashida Tlaib put it last week when we were criticizing things she said, not things she was. So you have this, this, this society we have now built for ourselves where just being of a minority status gives you an already certain ability to claim a certain – Injustice, whether it's there or not. So if someone criticizes you, it's now quite regular and de rigueur for that person to say that's racist. You have now an example of that with this parade. Because something happened at a gay pride parade, and that's exactly why – I mean this literally is some people suffered something. You know, this was an accident. But because it was a gay pride parade and everyone's got their trigger ready to pull to condemn their society and their country, that's the first trigger they do pull. That is the first bullet they do fire. This is why we are so apt to find progressives rushing to believe every first story that often and often ends up being a racial crime hoax. Do you remember from Oprah Winfrey to Kamala Harris the denunciations over what happened to Jesse Smollett and the uh, forgive me um, uh, the NASCAR uh, who was the NASCAR Bubba Wallace Bubba Wallace the NASCAR driver. Do you remember the denunciations? And the assumptions, because there's something wrong with us, and it goes to COVID as well. It's not just racial. There's something wrong with us that wants to believe the worst as the first assumption. I'd like to speak more about that, actually. Let me make a note. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If it's 34 past the hour, we check in with John Dombrowski for our culture and economy update. John is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website, and he's also a radio host in his own right, hosting the Word on Wealth right here Saturday mornings on 960 at 7 a.m. John Dombrowski, I hope you had a good weekend. Happy Monday. 
I did. Happy Monday, Seth. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. You know, one of the interesting things that happens in the summertime is news tends to, after the Supreme Court finishes all its work, news tends to slow down a little bit and uh, budget work and spending focuses become uh, more and more what we see politically and economically. And I think we're going to be starting to realize how um, how high the federal cash register is uh, running and has been running over the last uh, six months or so, John. I was uh, thinking about in one of these uh, record-breaking sprees, there was this article about wealth transfers, you know, just right. transferring of money uh, in this country is adding up into trillions of dollars in ways I hadn't yeah. thought about. Yeah, hey, well, it's interesting, Seth. Of course, not only uh, we'll talk about this, yeah. this, this budget, and it's a document called the Historical Table, no. um, and they talk about the table in there, which is direct payments to individuals, right. and that's what I think you're referring to. Yeah. What's interesting is, is as, as a, an American, we have the right to acquire our assets and eventually, upon death, transfer those to our beneficiaries, right? right? And to anybody we want to. It's unlike other countries, maybe, where it has to stay within a family. Um, but now they're also talking about, outside of this article, uh, taxing that again even more. So we could talk about that at another point, which is something that I totally disagree yeah, with. Yeah, I but. do too. I do too, because <laughs> the money itself has been taxed. It's already taxed. Right. Yeah. Right. How many times has it been taxed? Yeah. And, 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 and you know, to, to see this article now talking about these historical tables, and it, it, this doesn't include salaries now paid to federal employees. Right. This is really just money that's being taken and giving directly to individuals. Right. And uh, it's $4.9 trillion yep. dollars of right. payments going to these individuals. Uh, and out of all of that, what's really interesting, Seth, of course, you know, we would hear, well, that's because we need to help the underprivileged right. and it's so not, on and so forth. It's so not forth. the bulk of it, is it? Right. No. The bulk of this is is the middle class. Yeah. And, and for example, they talk about $1.1 trillion in Social Security checks right. Right. to retirees, right. $843 billion to uh, retiree medical bills, mm-hmm. Another hundred and thirty nine billion to help students pay for college. Yep. I mean, so this is not uh very little going to those And to and to shore up there's a huge number in there to shore up federal pension too. I think something yes. like four hundred billion bucks to shore up federal pensions. Yep, yep, three hundred and seventy nine billion pensions. Now that that's an interesting one because yep. that just means to me federal pensions can do whatever the heck they want and wait for sure. a Democratic Party administration to just bail them out and bail time. it out. Exactly right. And so this is not helping those in need. You know, we think about the people that are, are living on the streets, people that uh, don't have money to pay for health care. We're talking about the Medicaid now scenario. Right. And there's only 11% of that budget goes to Medicaid. That's right. That's and right. So, I mean, it's 4% to food programs. Seth, this is really discouraging to read this article. Uh, and you probably won't hear much about this no. in, the, in the news. Uh, no, because, but I knew it would be something that would pique uh, your pique yeah. your pique your interest, John. Because I know that you know the spending side is of such concern, but no one ever thinks about this angle of it, and it's as bad as anything else in the trillions, as you mentioned. And as they said, the government's going to have to borrow one point three trillion dollars of the money it's transferring. Yeah. Think about that. So when they talk about you know our grandchildren and what they're going to have to be 
uh, you know, covering from all of the mistakes we have today. This is just, and then of course we've got the new bill that's going to be passed for infrastructure, yeah. which of course very, very, very little of that money is going to be going to infrastructure. Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. It'll be like when we passed the lottery, how many teachers, remember how it was supposed to help the schools and teachers, how many teachers right. remember those pay raises here, or I guess one might say with casinos. It's going to be interesting with infrastructure once that passes, how many Americans are going to be able to look around and say, boy, yeah, I'm glad we did that. I don't know. I don't know if we're. I bet a lot. That, I'll tell but. you what I bet you now. Let me lay a marker. I bet you a lot of streets that you and I didn't think needed work are going to yeah. get a lot of work. Uh, well, we'll see. Okay. We'll see. Hey, I, I would say this, though. Again, this will affect your money that's invested out there in the markets. We need to be careful of how we're invested. And if you need help with that, how to allocate your funds, that's what I do every day for our clients. So. And you do it like no one else. Thank you, John. Thank you. Securities yeah. and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and Cipic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Talk. You betcha. I'm Seth. 602-508-0960. Be right back. Okay, sure. I will. Today's your, your Christmas comes early for you, Bill. I will. I will. I will allow you to to lose that bumper song. Yes, I will. That's fine. But do we have other share songs? Jesse James. Do we have Jesse James and stuff like that? Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Don't worry. We have actually been working on our bumper music. Uh, just because you heard some share, you know, I know it's fun to make fair, it's easy to make fun of her, but um, I was thinking of people who have been performing, and there's not a lot of performers out there who've been doing it as long as she has. If you think that what was her, uh, her, her first performance was probably I've Got You Babe circa 63, 64. She's performing since 1963, 64. For, so you're talking Paul McCartney. Maybe uh, anyone older than that still performing? Longer than that, I should say. Not Elton John. He didn't have hits till the late 60s. Not Simon and Garfunkel. Not Paul Simon. She may be up there. Top, top five longest performing artists. Could be. Very well could be. Who am I missing? Anyway, um, let me uh, continue this thought I was having um, just a bit earlier stemming from the story out of Fort Lauderdale where the mayor, the mayor, jumps to the wrong conclusion claiming an accident was terrorism when it was an accident because it it did involve a a community of a a minority community, in this case a gay rights parade. And the conditioning is to think anything that happens in these circumstances with a population that considers or is considered – considers itself or is considered to be a minority – um, too many's first reaction is there's something wrong with our community. Our community, someone in our community, did something evil, um, motivated by hate. It's amazing to me that there's this tendency to believe the worst on so many fronts, which I believe is a subtle underlying notion of the general attitude about America, which is why there was so much media antagonism to the notion of American greatness. The idea that uh, we can be 
um, a good place, much less a great place, um, flies right in the face of the notion that we are part of a, a, a broader and world community that abjures ethnocentrism or nationalism or patriotism at this point. Uh, because there has at the same time been a – we'll get into this with Jason Whitlock's latest instruction. But there has been now a years – several years long effort to um, to put patriotism about online with uh, drug dealing in this country as an opium of the masses. That was, that, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of the right point. It is seen as an opium of the masses, an opioid of the masses. Patriotism is here as religion was to Karl Marx, and uh, thus uh, those who engage in that kind of behavior, i.e. patriotic, uh, get the same kind of treatment that many people used to give as uh, condign contempt to uh, earned contempt to drug dealers, opium dealers. That has been reversed, and we seem to be turning a blind eye to actual opium dealers. I see the vice president today, the woman in charge, the person, the United States elected representative who has been tasked with handling our border crisis in which opioids are not a small problem, in fact, a huge problem. Um, she held another meeting today, but not in Washington, D.C., and not in Texas, and not in Arizona, not, at, not on the border at all, but uh, in uh, Pennsylvania and not on issues having to do with the border crisis. This is an issue that uh, from neglect will grow. Where did the opioid crisis, opioid crisis come from in the first place, you may wonder? It's an interesting story and one that not a lot of people think about. But if you go back in your memory uh, before roughly 19, oh, I don't know, 99, 2000, maybe even a little later, you're going to have a hard time finding words like opioids. You're probably not going to find them in the public press very much up until 2013, 14, or 15. Maybe not even till 14 or 15. And the reason is it was an issue that grew from neglect, as every major substance abuse issue in this country does. The Obama presidency turned a blind eye to what was going on with the growing fentanyl, illegal fentanyl problem and China and smuggling and um, and uh, illegal um, illegal uh, uh, crossing. Distribution through illegal crossings and cartels, they ignored it and it rose and it came and it was kind of interesting because it was a problem that they did a um, – a, a, a good snow job on, a really good snow job on in trying to convince and in some cases successfully convincing the courts that most of this was um, – most of these problems were uh, resultant from unethical doctors and legal pharmaceutical uh, transact or legal pharmaceutical manufacturing. They were some of the problem, a very small wrong part of the problem to focus on as seriously as the illegal problem is. It is much bigger problem, a much bigger problem, the illegal part of this, not the wrong and illegal distribution of the legal, but the illegal distribution of the illegal. It is a much bigger problem here. And that is a problem that is invoked with our border crisis. And that is a problem this administration is ignoring. So it's an interesting thing to me that when you have a real problem, it gets ignored. And when you don't have a problem, 
uh, that is the problem. Uh, you want to make du jour, you have to invent it. You ignore the real problem and invent fake ones, like the mayor of Fort Lauderdale did. Like the, um, like the issue with anti-Asian violence. Why that happened and why this is happening, while there is almost zero coverage, almost zero coverage of the past four weeks of anti-Semitic acts, is another interesting question. When you invent the fake and ignore the real. You ignore what is actually taking place and focus on that which is not. Mayor Lightfoot is telling us that racism in Illinois and in this country, racism in this country is a health crisis. We knew this was coming. We knew this was coming. Once you could get a country to turn itself inside out over a crisis, there were any number of crises waiting on the door to knock and come in, weren't there? Now, about why there are so many in this country who are willing to first believe the worst of us, this has been a long, a long, a long time part and plaint of the left. Uh, you, you have heard me on this before, but think of the song Eve of Destruction from Barry Maguire, 1967-68, about how everything was going to be destroyed. Think of the way the Democrats have leveraged the nuclear issue against candidates like Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater. Think about the population bomb. Think about the environmental crisis. There is a progressive tendency to convince us that we are not living in the best of times and worst of times, but just the worst of times, and that we are on the eve of destruction. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You know, another example of ignoring the real and going and inventing the fake. Um, I was just I was reminded of this. I heard. Congressman Matt Gates on uh, Seb's show earlier in the day, and it dawned on me how much media there was about, um, you know, uh, accusate uh, about investigations into sexual harassment or assault as committed by Matt Gates, uh, without a single woman coming forward. By the way, remember how big a story this was. Now, what about the nine women with names that did come forward to Andrew Cuomo? What story has more play? What story has tainted who? Sheldon Whitehouse is one of the most woke Democratic senators. He's on the Judiciary Committee. He takes a lot of camera time. And he is one of the, I think, nastiest pieces of work in the Democratic caucus. Uh, always, um, always berating Republican witnesses, always berating America on issues of race, and it was discovered he is still a member of a private club known as the Spouting Rock Beach Association in Newport, Rhode Island. He was questioned by a cameraman over the weekend why he was still going to an all-white club, and he said it's a long tradition in Rhode Island, and there are many of them. Oh, right. It's a long tradition that's the answer. It's a long tradition. I um, 
I hope any how much time do I have? I lost my clock by accident. Two full two. I hope next time a um Republican witness is in front of Sheldon Whitehouse and he engages in the high dungeon he usually does. The witness can just redound to his answer. It's a long tradition. What the Democrats are allowed to get away with, this was Bill Clinton's answer, by the way, at Robert Byrd's funeral, when asked how he could attend the funeral of a Klansman. And Clinton said, of course, Robert Byrd was in the Klan. You had to be to get elected in West Virginia in those days. Oh, again, oh, there are values more important than ra- than being anti-racist, evidently, if you're a Democrat. Or opposed to sexual assault. And they are, if you are a Democrat. Those are the things that are more important. It's really just one thing. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.